Last week we did a missions update and uh, talked about our trip to Lebanon, and you guys got to hear from some of the team and everything about the things that we got to do there. It was a blast, and it was neat to hear uh, from everyone. Before that, we had finished off the chapter uh, 25 in Matthew, and things uh, since chapter 24, Jesus has been unloading some very heavy truth. Uh, in Matthew 24, there was a main focus of future events and the end times and the rapture of the church. And, and then Jesus goes into teaching parables that are really explaining what we do with that knowledge, right? What do, what do we do with all this information about the master's return? And so he shows us through parables um, that, first of all, we're to be watching for just that, to be watching for the master's return, not getting super sidetracked with all the world's politics or looking even for the, the rise of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. We are to be looking for the return of Jesus. And, and doing what he has instructed us to do until he returns, right? Along with that, that we are to, to know him, not just know of him, not just know things about him, but to personally know who he is, what he's like, what his character is. And that's a relationship that's continuing to grow and continuing to get deeper. And then <clears throat> we are to be investing into the lives of other people. The things that God has invested into us, the good news, salvation, <coughs> excuse me, we are to be investing into the lives of other people. Um, and also just providing pr practical needs, right? Water, food, compassion, love for people, um, and doing it all in his name. Now we get to chapter 26, which is a change. It's a new section of Matthew. Uh, things are, are going, not in, a, not in a different direction, but a different focus as the cross is very very close at this point and so again we're going to see here we've almost had a break you know chapters 24 and 25 have been a break from the religious leaders and all their pettiness and their anger and their jealousy of jesus and we've been looking to forward events things that are going to happen in our future and now jesus brings us back to what's next and in that case, it is the cross. But we're also going to see this, I think, maybe the most beautiful act of worship recorded in the New Testament. And I, and I think for us, it's the example of what all worship should be. And, and, and I don't just mean the music before church, but any act of worship that we choose to enter into, that this, I think, is in so many ways the model for us. And so we're going to look at that. That's mainly going to be our focus today. Is Matthew uh, chapter 26 is a long chapter. We're probably going to take it in three or four chunks. So just a small uh, piece today is uh, we're only going to go through verse 13. So let's pray and we will get into the chapter. God, we thank you so much just for the goodness that you Give us each and every time we set our focus on you. And we do that today, Lord, as we get into your word. We thank you for this time of worship. And we thank you that you desire to meet us right here. As we study your word today, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would teach us. You would apply these things to our lives, and you would show us what worship is to be for each one of us individually. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So starting verse 1, chapter 
26. It says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these things, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to, this, up to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Again, uh, you know, it says Jesus had finished all these things. It's not just speaking of the last few chapters. In some ways, it's speaking again of the change that takes place and that Matthew is, is recording the, this change because this is the last time Jesus teaches the crowds. That time has passed. This is the last time that Jesus teaches the religious leaders. Even the way he corrects them has been a form of teaching them. That's done too. The disciples will still see some amazing lessons. But it isn't going to be in the format that it's been in the past where it's Jesus the rabbi teaching his students. That's a lot of how he taught the disciples. And again, that's over. And so now it is a, a record of action. Jesus is focused on the cross. And everything from now until then, that's all it's about. There isn't going to be a time of teaching the masses or the crowds or, again, dealing with the Pharisees. It is all that's past. And, um, and it's easy. Like I said, we've had kind of a break from what's going on. So again, just kind of keep it in, in context. Why are the religious leaders so angry? Why is it at this point that they're like, that's it. We've got to deal with this guy. We've got to take him out completely. Well, it's been his whole ministry. But it's really intensified starting back at chapter 21. Remember when Jesus comes into the, to Jerusalem, the triumphant entry, and, and the people are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That was them proclaiming that he is the Messiah. Very clearly. There was no question about what they were saying. Now, their idea of the Messiah, like we've talked about before, was very different. They saw a military leader. They saw a political leader. They didn't see somebody bringing salvation in a spiritual way, saving their souls, forgiving their sins. That was secondary, really. And, but it was still calling him the Messiah. And so the religious leaders at that time told Jesus, make them stop. You can't let them speak this. They're, in their mind, they're like, this is blasphemy. And Jesus goes, I'm not going to stop them. If I stop them, the, the very stones would cry out because it's that true, right? And... And so again, the crowd proclaims that he's Jesus. By Jesus not stopping them, Jesus is proclaiming he's the Messiah as well. From there, he goes to the temple. And we talked about all of the, the thievery and, and just horrible corruption that was taking place there in the selling of animals for sacrifice and the changing of money. And Jesus goes in. This is actually the second time he's done this. At this time, he overturns the tables again. He drives the people out, and he, and he says that you've, you've turned my house is to be known as a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Again, the religious leaders are offended because all that money was going in their pockets. 
They're the ones behind that corruption. That was a very straightforward rebuke against them and their hypocrisy. Now Jesus leaves, comes back the next day, and just sets up shop in the temple where he begins to teach. And the focus of his teaching through parables and then at the end just directly right at them is at the religious leaders. In the end, he's saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You can't get much clearer than that. It's right at them. And so all of these things were taking place, and this is why they are so furious at this point. Because they can't justify their sin. They can't excuse their behavior. They can't somehow make it seem okay, all the things they've done. They've absolutely been called on the carpet, and they're wrong. And so they have to remove Jesus. They have to have him killed in order to try and keep on to their power, keep a hold of their authority. I also think part of what's going on is that Jesus has been talking a lot about who he is to the disciples. Now, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 have not been to the crowds. It's been just to the disciples. And so he's been speaking about that he is the master that will be returning. He's been talking about his authority just at the very end of chapter 25, that he's the one that will judge all nations. And the disciples are like, yeah, right? This is our guy. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah, the one we've been following. This is the stuff that they wanted to hear. And so that's why he reminds them, in two days, I will be betrayed and crucified. That isn't what he's been talking about. But he's got to bring them back to the understanding of this is what is next. All those things are still true. But in two days, it's going to seem like none of those things are true. Um, Now, Matthew gives us the record of the plot of the religious leaders in verse 3. It says, Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at a place excuse me, at the palace of the high priest who is called Caiaphas. It's a little confusing. So if you read through the gospel, sometimes it says the the high priest was named Annas and other times Caiaphas. And so what's happening is at this time, Annas had been the high priest. Um, Rome didn't like him. And so they removed him. And they put in his place Caiaphas, which is Annas' son-in-law. But here's the thing, according to Jewish law, according to the scriptures, the high priest can't be removed. He's the high priest until he dies. And so Caiaphas and Annas kind of worked it out that in the Jewish mindset and to the Jewish people, Annas would continue to be the high priest. But all things that dealt with Rome would be Caiaphas. And so at this time, there's actually two high priests. Little side note, but... That's why you see both of those names there. Uh, And they were equally corrupt. They got along great. Like I said, Caiaphas was actually Annas' son-in-law, and these guys were just horrible. After this, there is a sharp downward spiral where high priests start just turning over. And it just becomes a political office. Boot one guy out, another guy goes in, another guy goes out. Caiaphas will eventually end up taking his own life. Um, It's a horrible, horrible group of people. So they are plotting together to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. 
And that word for trickery means guile or deceit. And the idea is like political deceit or political maneuvering. They know that they can't do it by the law. They can't point to it and say, hey, this guy's blaspheming and therefore worthy of death. They can't say that he's broken any laws. They've tried all of this stuff already, and every time they do, it backfires on them. And so they've got to do some sort of political maneuvering, and we'll see it there at Jesus' trial. That's the exact trickery that they're talking about here, is that they're not only trapping Jesus, they're trapping Pontius Pilate in order to do what they want, right? And again, we just see the twisted hearts of these people that here they're planning to murder an innocent man. And they admit that he's innocent because they have to do it by trickery. Oh, but let's not do it on the Sabbath, or let's not do it on the Passover because we don't want the people to get upset. And that's really all they care about. Not, they don't, it isn't that they care about the people. It's that they care about losing the popular vote. Oh, we want to stay on the people's good side. We don't want to start an uproar. We don't want our integrity being brought into question, as it should be, right? These are horrible people. Now, as it ends up, they will still uh, have Jesus crucified right at the Passover, though they're trying to avoid it. It had to go down that way. So they wound up doing it, though they wanted to avoid it. Verse 6 goes on. It says, and when Jesus was in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it out on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste for this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and get been sold for much and given to the poor. But Jesus was aware of it and said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil out on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Now, again, Matthew doesn't give us a ton of details. And so, kind of looking at the other Gospels, we'll fill in some of them as we go. But as I said, I think this is maybe the most beautiful act of worship. And, and in order to get it, we need to know some of the details about it. If we just look at it and go, okay, this seems a little odd, but maybe that was a cultural thing or whatever. It, it, there's so much more to it than that, especially the sacrifice of what this woman does. And, and I, as I said, I think it's a great picture of true worship. And I say that for a reason, not just worship. True, honest worship, right? Um, not just the music before church. If you look up the definition of what worship is, it's something to the effect of, the acts or rites that make up a formal expression of reverence or a religious ceremony. Well, I mean, I guess those are true to a certain extent. But I think true worship is so much more. 
because we can do a lot of those things. We can perform acts and rites and go through the motions of reverence. We can sing songs. We can even say prayers. And our thoughts and hearts can be a million miles away. Now, again, that's part of our nature, right? And that we all are in that place. There's plenty of times we're singing the songs and we know the words, but we're not really affected by them. And I still think, to a degree, our hearts are in the right place. We want to worship the Lord, right? But we also know that there's a big difference between that and those times where we've entered into just a broken time before the Lord. True worship. And I would define it as any act that we choose to enter into individually that reminds us that he is God and he is good and we are neither. It takes us low in our minds and in our hearts and it sets him on high. That's worship. That's true worship where the distractions and the fears and the arrogance and all of it's removed, and we find ourselves there before the Lord. Just Him and us, right? Now, we're told here by John, excuse me, by Matthew, uh, that uh, this is taking place in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Um, now, Though Matthew, none of the Gospels tell us this, you can kind of assume, I think it's safe to assume, this is a leper that's been healed. Because a leper would never invite people over for a dinner. Absolutely not. Hey, I still have leprosy, but could you come over? I mean, I think Jesus and the disciples are going, okay, but no one would have ever done that. That is most likely this dinner is the celebration of his healing. And, and that it's there in Bethany. It's the same town that Jesus has been staying at or going to, to be with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Now John tells us that in fact, uh, that Mary, or excuse me, that Martha was asked to serve. So she's catering this dinner. That Lazarus was there at the table as a, as a guest, and that this woman is Mary. Now, Matthew just says a woman, but it's Mary. And she comes in, and with this very costly fragrant oil in an alabaster flask. And it's important, to me, this is the detail that we miss so easily of what this little flask of fragrant oil is and what it means. If you just think it's a nice bottle of perfume, uh, you missed it. So uh, this flask had no handles and it had no lid. It was fashioned in such a way that in order to get the oil out, you had to break it. It was an all-or-nothing deal. You couldn't like, take a little out, use it, put the lid back on, that once it was opened, it was opened forever, and the oil would be spent. It was also, we're told, very costly. But we can miss the point of that and, and just think that it was an expensive thing. It was very costly. That when people would receive a large chunk of money, and it could have been from an inheritance or the sale of property, or maybe a very successful harvest would come in, 
you couldn't just take the money to the bank. Uh, banks were very unreliable. They did exist, but they were unreliable. Uh, and, and usually it was only used like an entire city would deposit money into a bank or a king or somebody of great wealth. Common people really didn't. So often what they would do is they would take that chunk of money and they would buy something like this. It was their investment. It was small, it was portable, it held its value, and it would have that same value anywhere they went because everybody knew what it was. Now, understanding the value of it, I think, is, is great. But what it meant to her, I think, is even more important. Wherever that money came from, and we don't know, it represented her past. It was, it was a great inheritance or something that came to her. Her past is tied up in that little flask. And because of its value, so is her future. This wasn't like, oh, I've got 10 of these at home. I'll just give one to worship Jesus. This was it. We know that this is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they are not wealthy. They're poor. For her to have this is surprising at all. And so when she shows up and you realize this is her future, an unmarried woman in the Hebrew culture very often would end up in poverty. This was her future. This was her security. This was everything she had hoped her future might entail. Whether that was giving it to her husband as something of value or whether, who knows what. But, man, there's a lot there of her hopes and dreams and everything else. And here she is breaking it and pouring it out on Jesus in this beautiful act of worship. Her past, her present, and her future. All out on Jesus. Man, what a great picture of what worship, what true worship is supposed to be, right? And certainly when it comes to the moment of salvation, when we come to Jesus Christ, it's our past forgiven. It's something we're doing in our present moment by coming to the Lord. And it involves our eternal future. So it's all of those things tied together. Um, But I think it continues like that in worship. Because we get all caught up and stressed out still about mistakes of the past, right? I don't know how often I still have arguments of things that were said 10 years ago. It's over, right? I mean... There's no going back to that. Call that person up. Hey, remember when we talked 10 years ago? I just got a point that I should have made back then because, man, it would have really made sense, and now it doesn't. But, but we still get stressed out about it. And, of course, stuff that last week or yesterday, we're like, oh, you know, conversation remorse. Like, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, or I said too much or too little or whatever. We get so stressed and worried about things in our past, and even victories. Instead of looking at victories in a positive light, very often we take credit for it and go, yeah, of course, because I did it, right? And we, we get boastful and brag about our victories. But when we come into worship, it all gets put in the right perspective. And we're reminded again of how we've been forgiven of so much. And 
and that our past, once again, whatever we've done, whatever we've gained, Jesus has it all handled. We're forgiven, and we're humbled. We're reminded that any good thing that we've achieved or been a part of, he, it's all come from him. In the same way, I think our future is the same. Again, we, we know these things in our head, but how often do we stress out about what's next? Well, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? What if they get upset? Well, what if this doesn't work? We've got all these plans. We've got these things we're hoping for. What if it doesn't happen, right? Lay awake at night, stressed out about stuff, and then in the morning you're like, why was I so stressed out about that? But when we enter into worship, we're reminded how he's taken such good care of us, how he's provided. We were reminded of who we are in him and who he is and his faithfulness and that we belong to him. Again, past, present, future, it's all put into the right perspective. But I think that... uh, the other thing that's going on here, and, and there's a, you know, more things we're going to look at in this, but we need to realize that this whole scene that's taking place there, it's a very awkward moment. I mean, this wasn't a common thing. They're all at this dinner party, and Martha's serving, and hey, there's Lazarus, and, and the disciples are telling stories or whatever, and all of a sudden, Mary, maybe she was there, or maybe she came in, she goes to Jesus, and people are like, hmm, what's this about? And, and, and I just picture the whole room going silent as she breaks this bottle and pours out this fragrant oil. Now, in no way, even in the Hebrew culture, was she doing anything inappropriate. But it wasn't normal either. <laughs> and, and again, if you've ever been at a you know, dinner party where suddenly everything gets super awkward and everyone's like, oh, I don't even know what to say. You know, again, it may not be anything inappropriate, but this isn't normal at all. And I, I think one of the things that uh, we need to understand that when it comes to worship, it's going to cost us something. And very often what it costs us, not necessarily a financial like it does here for Mary, but it's more on this side of costing us things, is it's going to cause us to look very awkward to the rest of the world, sometimes even to other believers. Who are the people who begin speaking harshly and, and giving her a hard time? It's the dis- disciples. You think of anyone that they'd be like, oh, man, this is cool, right? She gets it. She's the only one that gets it. Even the disciples, in verse 8, says his disciples saw it and were indignant, saying, why this waste? Right? And so, I think one of the things that I love about this is that there is no record of Mary kind of backing down or being ashamed or being fearful. She's very focused on Jesus. No matter what the disciples are saying, she's just focused on Jesus. And I've found over the years, and I I haven't certainly perfected this by any means, I've just seen this change in myself, that when I was younger, especially when it came to the things of the Lord, occasionally there would be people that come along and say, I don't understand why you do this. Or when you do this, it's just a little weird, it's a little awkward, I don't get it. 
And I used to try and like explain myself. Well, I made this decision for this, and I, I do this because the Bible says that. And you know what? Now I don't do any of that. I just go, you don't get it because it's not for you. I don't need to explain myself because it's for the Lord. It's, it's not for you. If you don't get it, you don't get it. And I don't want to be arrogant about that, but I just don't feel the need to explain myself. And I, that's kind of how I picture Mary here, right? She doesn't care if nobody else gets it. It's not for them. It's not for the disciples. It's not for anyone at the party. This is for Jesus. And he gets it. And that's what matters. Now, as far as the grumbling and the scoffing, John tells us that it was Judas who started the whole thing. Judas was the one to go, oh, what a waste. And all the other disciples were like, hey, good point, Judas. Yeah, what a waste. You know, and they all jump on board. He was doing it because he wanted to make his greed sound godly. And very often the mocking that might come towards our walk with the Lord or our relationship or whatever it might be, our act of worship, and other people are like, I can't believe you do that. That seems so irresponsible. Their motives are their problems. Again, we're to be focused on Jesus. Because we can fall into that and go, oh, gosh, maybe they're right. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Is that a waste? No. If we're doing it to, to worship the Lord, it's not a waste at all. Now their logic, this fragrant oil may, might have been uh, sold for much and given to the poor. Man, that sounds so right. It sounds so righteous. Oh man, yeah, what a waste. What if we'd sold that? And we're talking about a huge value. And we would have given it to the poor, right? <laughs> and again, the disciples jump on that. Oh yeah, yeah, right. We should be thinking about the poor. Um, now, imagine that they thought that Jesus was going to go, oh, boys, you know what? That's a good point. But Jesus doesn't at all. In fact, he rebukes them. He confronts them for criticizing her. In verse 10, it says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. Again, Jesus is her defense. She doesn't need to defend herself, explain herself, justify anything. The Lord knows how to defend those who worship him. And then he says something interesting. Verse 11. I love this. This, is, this has been an important verse in my life. For you will have the poor with you always, but me, you do not have always. Now, Jesus is not saying to ignore the poor. He's not saying that we should ignore the needs of the people around us. But I believe he is saying we need to have our priorities. Candy and I have quoted this verse at really key moments in, in raising our kids and in, in, in our lives. And it's funny because I don't remember any time we ever sat down and dis discussed what this means. I just remember one of us had said it, and it just puts everything into perspective. Because there are always big needs. There are always huge things that can easily take priority. And then there are some things that will never come again. Right? For us, it has been those things that are, where we're like, yeah, there's always more bills to pay. 
There's always more things to do. There's always more work that needs to be done. There's always some great need that a, a group of people has somewhere or even maybe even immediately right, right here. But that's never going to go away. The time with our children will. And so for us, again, there were still, it isn't that you dismiss all those other needs, but you prioritize. And you're like, okay, so we've been working on these other things, these other needs for a while now, but you know what? We're going to take a vacation with our kids. Or we're just going to have a staycation at home, and we're going to play games, and we're going to do stuff with them. Because this time of their childhood, it's never coming again. And we never want to look back and go, we missed it. Man, I've seen too many families, too many pastors that have sacrificed their families on the altar of ministry. Oh, I'm available 24-7, and they're out all the time, and they're this, and they're there, and they're doing these book tours and whatever. And the whole while, the things that will never come again are getting completely missed for a need that will never be completely filled. You will always have the poor with you. And that's always been the check and reminder for us. And something comes along and one of them says, we'll always have the poor with us. This need will never be completely filled. But this time, or these things, are brief. And so Jesus is telling that with the disciples, going, look, you're always going to have these needs, but I'm only going to be here a little while. Once again, Mary is shown She's the one doing it right. Remember when Martha came at her going, hey, t Jesus, tell my sister to get in the kitchen and help out. And he's like, she's actually doing what's needed. You know, in that instance, Jesus could have said, there's always dirty dishes, Martha. <laughs> right? There's always housework that needs to be done, Martha. There's always a lawn that needs to be mowed. There's always, but this time's only going to be here right now. Let that other stuff go. Again, doesn't mean never do it. Don't take those things uh, serious, or, or, but put them in the right perspective. In all of our lives, there are needs that are necessary, but they will never go away completely. And there are other things that are brief. And we need to be clear about which is which and make sure our priorities are lining up with those things. Now, Another thing, this is the last point concerning uh, this act of worship, is that, well, I should say it's two points. First, because I just thought of the second one. <laughs> A true act of worship brings change. And it affects the people around us. I guess that's part of the change. I believe a true act of worship, first of all, makes a change within us. There are those that will get all hyped up and, and have a huge emotional experience. And, and the, to them, that's what going to church or, or maybe even worship is about, is, is this huge rush of emotion. I, I've talked with people and, and uh, they'll say, oh, man, church was so good today. And, man, I laughed and I cried. And, and man, I, I just felt so convicted. And, and I'm like, well, what was the Bible study about? And they're like, oh, I don't know. What were you convicted about? Well, I don't know. I remember feeling guilty. And then I laughed. And then I cried. And then church was over. It was great. And, you're like, and to me, I'm like, 
Okay, so you went on an emotional ride, but a movie will do that. But worship brings change. It doesn't mean you remember every detail about a Bible study, but it does mean that you walk out there and you feel that the Lord has called us either closer to him. Well, I think no matter what, there's, that, there's a closeness that we grow in, but there's always something too that's like, you know what, I want to I grow in that part of my life. That we're changed by it, right? Now, the example why I think this is such an example of that is that when Mary broke that bottle, it changed everything in that house. No matter why they were there, no matter what their thoughts were of, of Mary or that act, her single act of worship influenced everyone in the house. When that fragrant oil was broken, you didn't need to be right next to it to smell it. It would have filled everything. And as she poured it out, it would have just diffused throughout that house. Everyone sitting around that, that house would have been covered in that scent. The beauty of her worship affected everyone. Now to the disciples, that fragrance was a fragrance of, of money being wasted. And so they missed the point altogether. But Mary, <laughs> had the same fragrance of Jesus. There was a closeness. There was a connection. And she knew what that meant. And so did he. That act of worship was personal. But it diffused to everyone else as well. Whether they wanted to be a part of it or not, did not matter. And it is lasting. It's not just something that's a brief rush of emotion. It's not the flash in the pan. It's something, as I said, it changes us and it is lasting. Verse 13 says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. You know, Jesus pays attention to the prayers that we pray and to the times of worship that we enter into. They are lasting. And the change that it brings about in our life also should be lasting. Again, I'm not talking about just emotion. I'm talking about real, honest worship of Jesus. It humbles us, brings us low. Reminds us, as I said, that he's God, we're not. And he's good, and we're not. It changes us from the inside out. And it impacts the lives of the people that we're around. I think one of the things, and again, raising our kids, it was a temptation sometimes, was to put on the happy face. Was to put on times when things were tough and we, no kids, here we go, we're going to worship and we're going to church and we're going to sing and, and put on the happy face. And, and Candy and I had made a choice earlier on that we weren't going to do that, that we were going to be real and honest. And I can remember times after church, not often, but occasionally, where the, the boys or Hannah would come up and say, Dad, I noticed you, you were crying during worship. Yeah, things are tough. Man, my heart's breaking for these people in the church or these people that we know or the things that we're going through in our family. And, you know, and, and I think the kids seeing honest worship 
we're impacted by that. And again, we just need to know, the fragrance of our worship affects the people around us. Now, I think it'd be easy, you know, just to wrap this all up and go, you know, uh, you know, how's your prayer life doing? How's your worship life doing? We'd all have the same answer. Eh, could be better, right? I mean, if we're, that's a, there's no good answer to that. Anybody that does say, it's great, you're like, you're a liar, you know? So, so there's no right way, but I, I think the, the right question is, is do you want more, yeah. right? Wherever you're at, Wherever you're at in your, your walk and your worship and your prayer life, do you want more than, than what you have now? Do you want more reality to it? Do you want more honesty in it? Do you want more of that relationship with Jesus in those things? And if so, is there, is there anything that you know of that's standing in the way of that? Is it what other people might think? Is it pride? Is it fear? Whatever it might be, I think that's a good thing for us to confront, going, Lord, this is what I want. I know what I want, but I also see what's standing in my way. Help me deal with that, right? Because I want to get more real with you, more honest in worship. My prayer is that we're going to be people like Mary individually, but we're also going to be a church like Mary. That, that the worship from this place, whether that's in music or in prayer or in tithing or in whatever it might be, whatever act of worship we are doing as a church, it affects this community. Some people are going to hate it. That's okay. Some people are going to be changed by it, going to be drawn by it. So I ask you guys to be praying with me in that, that God would teach us to be true worshipers. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you want our attention, that you would care what we think, that you would want to hear from us. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us how to be true worshipers, that our lives would be changed, our hearts would be changed, and that we would change the community that we're in through our worship of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.